Welcome to the Family Law Now podcast. Today we're joined by some of our fan favorites, Jason Eisenberg, welcome. Thank you very much. And Nafisa Nazarelli, welcome. Thank you. We've got a really important topic today. I know I say that every time, but spousal support is our topic and it affects just about every family that comes through our office. Uh, there's a lot to talk about today. Just a preamble, this is not legal advice that we're giving. We're simply providing some general broad stroke overviews of some of the things I think our listeners and our colleagues should be considering when we talk about spousal support. Having said that, let's get at it. Jason Entitlement. A lot of lawyers, when they think of support claims, they forget that the first step is entitlement. They completely overlook that. So when lawyers use language like entitlement, that's a legal term related to spousal support. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about whether someone should be getting spousal support or not. And you're right, a lot of people just jump to how much, how long. They don't talk about the likelihood someone's going to get it. Um, you know, there's different ways you can look at it. Um, you know, what the most common uh, way to look at it is uh, that do I need support or not? Um, and uh, does someone have the ability to pay it? Um, those are usually cases where something happened in the relationship that was uh, um, not really affecting. What, whether spousal should be paid or not, um, and uh, um, someone just says, I need the help. Um, another way to look at it is compensatory, where right. someone's saying, look, I, I lost things during the relationship. We made choices, we made decisions. Those choices and decisions hurt my career, my earning capacity, help yours, right. and I want you to compensate. So for example, if I had entered the same workforce at the same time as the other spouse, we would be on relatively equal playing field in terms of income and career progression, but if I stayed home and raised the children, I'm now delayed 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, you need to compensate me for that delay. So the lawyers call that a compensatory model of support. Uh, that's correct. I mean, when we talk about those terms, that's what we mean. So another uh, element of entitlement is uh, there could be a contractual obligation to pay support. Yes, I think that's one I say that a lot of people uh, forget about. Um, those are situations where a judge says, okay, was there already an agreement that you guys are, um, someone's paying spouse support, someone's receiving it. Um, so that makes a difference with uh, what we're doing with the future. Or there may respect. have been a marriage contract where they contemplated spousal support, yes, which that, give, gives rise to entitlement. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, a spouse also has a special meaning. Every word we use seems to have a special meaning, but spouse has a special meaning. Uh, first of all, married couples have entitlement pursuant to the Divorce Act, but how does the Family Law Act, which is provincial legislation, treat the definition of spouse? You want to tackle that one, Nafisa? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're a common law, it's, it's one of those things where you have to go to the Family Law Act and see, okay, well, how is spouse defined? So if you're in a relationship resembling marriage for a period of time, um, three years, um, then at that point you, you qualify as a spouse and you would be qualified for an entitlement to spousal support. So it's important to go back to the actual legislation and to look at the wording um, and, and to make sure that you fall within the wording of, of spouse in order to, uh, to satisfy the obligation. So the entitlement may flow from the Divorce Act. That's right. It may flow from the Family Law Act if you're a common law couple. That's right. It may flow from contract. That's right. Um, the Divorce Act talks about need and ability to pay. And this is what I usually talk about with a lot of clients. Mm -hmm. 
because it's language they can understand. So let's just, we're going to have a hypothetical example we're going to walk through today. Let's just assume uh, the support payer is making $100,000 and the support recipient or the person claiming support is making $25,000. Well, in law, there's an argument to say that $100,000 income earner has an ability to pay. Mm -hmm. And depending on the type of a relationship and the length of it and other factors we're going to get into, the person receiving $25,000 may have a need because that $25,000 isn't sufficient to meet her budget. Mm -hmm. So that would be, I mean, the, the need and ability to pay is the third ground of entitlement. So as Jason was saying, there is a compensatory ground, there's contractual, and then there's non-compensatory. So need and ability to pay would fall under the non-compensatory entitlement. Um, and again, it's, it's that looking at the net disposable income of, of the party. If there's a huge disparities between the incomes, um, which may not necessarily entitle you to spousal support, but it's a, it, it is a factor that we would look at in terms of entitlement. And the other thing we sometimes overlook is the Divorce Act talks about a duty to become self-sufficient uh, mm -hmm. and not to rely on support. You mm -hmm. want to talk about that a little bit, Jason? Well, I, I think from what I find, that is an issue more when people are reviewing spousal support than the first instance, right? right? And so, because people often say that. Uh, first instance, the relationship's broken down, there's going to be the need to get back on your feet. Yeah, I mean, your initial separation, what you do with spousal support at that point, this duty to be self-sufficient is commonly brought up by a support payer and commonly tried to be ignored by a support recipient. But I think the court looks at it like, again, we have to give you some time to get on your feet, like you said. And I think that when people come back and say, look, you know, we've agreed upon what spousal should look like and now we want to change it, um, then a judge might wag the finger at the recipient and say, what have you done to be self-sufficient? Right. So there could be retraining, could be education, it could be getting back into the workforce. If somebody was staying at home to raise the children, uh, the judge would want to say, okay, did you go to college? Did you look for a job? Did you upgrade your skill set? Yeah. I mean, what's your plan? I mean, depending upon how long people um, were married or lived together, depending upon their ages and separation, we can pretty well predict, short of like something catastrophic happening, that support won't be paid till you die so, right. or retire. So what's your plan? If it's not going to be your spouse anymore at some point, are you going to literally be unable to pay your bills at some point? Right. Get ready. And each case is different, Jason. So I mean, uh, we, we look at, is, is there, number one, was it a compensatory basis? So was this a, a traditional marriage where wife routinely stayed at home, was, has never been in the workforce, hasn't worked for 10, 15 years, and now all of a sudden is required to become self-sufficient? So there is built into that, um, like you said, a grace period, you know? How long um, does this person have to retrain? Is she, does she have a high school or does he have a high school um, diploma? Is there um, a degree here? Um, and at that point, every case is different. So I think it's important to sort of um, look at the, ca the case, the facts of your case, and to see whether um, you know, you're being reasonable with your expectations of a, uh, the other spouse becoming self-sufficient. There is an obligation, but again, what are the circumstances under which that person is entitled? If she um, or he um, is on disability, for example, um, is it likely that they're going to be able to become self-sufficient? Is it within their um, capabilities at that time? So just be realistic with expectations because I find sometimes people come into our office and they, uh, they're, they're like, oh, you know, he has to become self-sufficient and 
hasn't worked in the last 10 years, but I want him to find a job and make at least $40,000. Right. Is that a reasonable expectation, right? Yeah, and disability is a whole interesting concept. Uh, yes. The support pair, well, maybe they should go on ODSP or long-term disability. Mm -hmm. Let the government worry about them. Why do mm -hmm. I need to pay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not the answer necessarily, mm -hmm. but this is something we hear a lot. All right, so we got all, we got through this concept of entitlement. Let's just say we get through that hurdle, and in some respect, you're married or your spouse is defined by the act, or you've got a contractual obligation with your partner that support be paid. Um, we hear a lot about SAGs, mm -hmm. so this is uh, an abbreviation for the Spousal Support Advisory Guidelines. This is sort of the default go-to position or software for lawyers and for courts to look at to give us an idea of ranges of support. Number of factors come into play, but maybe Jason, you can talk us a little bit through the SAGs, the, the support program. What are some of the, what's some of the data we want to enter into and how does it work? Well, I mean, first thing to say is that um, it's an advisory guideline, so it's not law. Um, but I would, so it's meant to be advisory, it helps us, it gives us advice. However, I would say that most of the courts in this province are going to follow and the, it's the facts usually a and first ask. instance, which yes. means your first kick at the can on yes. review, they might not consider it as, yes. as they, closely. They're going to ask you what the calculations are and ask you what the SAGs say if you're in front of a judge first instance. Um, it was written by two law professors um, who presumably know their stuff and, and gave us some direction, but it really gives us direction on the amount you pay and how much you're paying. It doesn't give us any direction on that entitlement we just spoke about. So right. that, that comes from case law. So you know what I find from the SAGs that's helpful is, is that it does give us ranges. Um, so it narrows down the discussion. Um, you're and, gonna and have- let's get off the table, yeah. floors and ceilings. So we're not gonna talk about those today, but in terms of the floor, you know, if you're earning less than $20,000, you're not likely gonna be requested to pay spousal support. In terms of a ceiling, uh, generally speaking, SAGs would be considered up to incomes of $350,000. Thereafter, they're still going to be considered, but they're not mandatory. There's sort of a lot of discretion comes into the play. So really, the income levels we're looking at, for the most part, for support calculations and SAGs, are twenty dollars to $350,000. Uh, beyond those, those uh, floors and ceilings, there's a lot of discretion. So let's take a look in terms of floor, if we're within this, uh, these goalposts, what are some of the factors we want to consider? So yeah, I mean 1.7 million, if you're making that amount of money, um, you might get a, a, a decision maker judge saying, hey, you know, I'm not going to use the 350 uh, um, rule, I'm going to go completely different. But right. I've had some people that if they make 700, that doesn't move the needle enough for a judge to say, I'm still applying the SAGs. I mean, uh, what are the numbers? Um, that's a ceiling of 350 that says I should follow it, but you gotta go well above that ceiling, I think. Um, I, I just you don't want to A lot of those high income there. cases also have high capital payouts in terms of equalization. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if you're receiving support on 500, 600,000, and you're also mm -hmm. receiving a $10 million property mm -hmm. settlement. Mm -hmm. This is where the discretion comes in because that $10 million can also start to generate income. Agreed, and I think that in those cases, you do have to consider whether the SAGs spit on a number right. that is so high that you say to your client, well, you might get this, but you're not gonna get it forever if you are worth $10 million, sure. and you can make some money off mm -hmm. of that too. Sure. 
So factors, uh, Nafisa, these uh, SAGs create a lot of gray area, mm -hmm. a lot of work for lawyers that help keep their kids in private school. Mm -hmm. um, what are the factors that go into these calculations? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, we, we would we would need to know, you know, the party's income. So usually we would uh, look at, you know, their income tax returns and sort of determine what is the income for the purposes of support. We would input those into our SAG um, calculations. We would also look at um, the length of the, the, the marriage or cohabitation. That is a factor that will affect um, spousal support. We would look at the age of the recipient. Um, the older you are, and um, if it's a compensatory claim, um, the higher um, the entitlement is in terms of the amount that's going to be provided to you. So those are also factors that are important. Um, so what, when I look at spousal support, I always look at, okay, I need the, the what are the facts here? Um, uh, what are the roles that were played during the relationship? Um, is this a relationship where both parties sort of had an equal, um, equal responsibilities with regards to the children, to the home, or is this a traditional type setting where one person went out and worked and the other one stayed home and took care of the children, took care of the home. So that's also very important um, in terms of the factors. One of the advantages Number, yep. of these online, these calculators as well is oftentimes support is deductible towards the payer's income and yep. taxable towards the recipient. That's right. The two parties are often in different tax brackets. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different tax treatment that goes into this calculation. Mm -hmm. There's also tax deductions and child tax mm -hmm. credits. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a mm -hmm. bit of a deeper dive into that. Right. Um, and, and again, like you said, the children, where they are, that also affects this, the spousal support amount. Is this a, a situation where the children are primarily going to reside with one parent right. or the other? Is this a situation where the children are going to be shared between the parties? Um, that will factor into uh, the spousal support. Right. So there's the with child calculations and then the without child calculations and we'll look at some samples about that. Mm -hmm. In terms of disability and some of these other little loose ends, Jason, uh, union dues, non-taxable payments or these mandatory payments, how are they factored into the calculation? Well, if you're talking about disability as far as how much you can get from a private disability or from ODSP, CBP, if there are sources of income, you count them. Um, right. You know, someone might get uh, a disability payment through their employment um, that they had as part of their benefits package. Sometimes that's paid as a non-taxable amount. We have to figure out what that actually represents. So it's actually going to be that number plus what, you know, if you had been, if you had earned that as income and paid tax on it, that's what was left over. So you're going to so gross actually, that up. You're going to gross up making a bigger number. Um, so your $30,000 net payment might be forty-two gross or whatever. Yeah, because someone who made $42,000 has $30,000 in income left, in, in buying power left over, and that's what we're trying to figure out. Right. What do you have left over every month is sometimes the, the big issue in spousal support and mm -hmm. comparing it to the other person has. Um, you know, if it's CPP, it's ODSP, that's usually taxable, so that's, that's you know, we, we just count the number you receive. Um, union dues, um, we have to deduct that. Um, you know, it's what you have in your pocket. Because again, what spousal is about is trying to figure out, you know, if you and some, if you live with someone, married to someone, you're already sharing money anyways. You're already sharing what you had, and you might not be making a monthly payment, but you were somehow supporting that person. And so coming, um, you know, after separation, looking back at what you guys have every month and how we distribute that, it's doing what you're already doing, just in a more um, structured way, as opposed to, you know, I'm going to pay more of the bills than you're going right. to pay. These income earners who have mandatory union dues, yes, 
those are factored into the calculation as well. We have to take them off. It's not in their pocket. I mean, right. it comes right off the top. And if it does, then that's fine. Uh, you know, you can't say that I have that money that's available to share with my spouse. The the question I get a lot, and I know we we deal with it quite often, if if there's infidelity or misconduct during the marriage, um, apart from reckless spending, or you know, we've seen some cases on gambling. Uh, but what do you say to clients about conduct and fees? So, you know, they cheated on me, why should I have to pay support? Yeah, this is a very hard, um, hard pill to swallow. And when I, when I tell my clients that, you know, past conduct doesn't really affect the amount um, or entitlement to spousal support. So, unfortunately, under our laws, you could be someone who um, got cheated on and you still would be um, responsible to pay spousal support to that person um, that cheated on you. So that's where there is a bit of, um, it, it's hard to swallow, but that's the state of the law and um, you will, it, it doesn't affect, conduct does not affect um, the entitlement or the amount of spousal support that a payer has to pay. And it helps reduce the conflict. 30 or 40 years ago, you know, we mm -hmm. hear these stories of, private investigators in the bushes with cameras trying to catch the other spouse, you know, cheating on, uh, thinking it's not going to affect support. So, you know, this whole idea of having to prove misconduct has been completely eliminated. That's right. It's a no-fault basis. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Um, so let's, before we go into the type of support orders, let's take a look at some support calculations. So these are going to be attached to our show notes. Um, and I've just done some hypothetical scenarios just to get a sense and a flavor as to how the roles and how the length of the relationship can affect the quantum or the amount of support that's paid. So I'll do the first one. I call this um, a without child formula. And this is uh, the first one's what we did in this hypothetical, we have the payer earning 100000 the recipient earning 25000 two-year relationship, so relatively uh, a low level of commitment. The analogy the court uses for support orders is your marriage is like a tree. The older and longer it gets, the deeper the roots go and the deeper your obligations are. So this is not a very uh, uh, tall tree yet, so to speak. So the mid-range spousal support would be 219. The duration is one to two years. And it has the support pair receiving about 74% of the NDI. Uh, and NDI is, uh, you'll see this on the calculation in the show notes, as something that is referred to as net disposable income. So if you think of your blended incomes as a pie, this is the percentage of the pie you're going to get. So in this particular scenario, the support payer is going to receive about 75% of the pie. Do you want us to you want to walk us through the nine-year scenario, Jason, and tell us what kind of numbers we get? Well, for nine years, you've got uh, much larger ranges, and, and I mean some of the reason why here is is that this without child support formula is taking a percentage of the differences between your incomes, in this case $75,000 is the difference between their incomes. And if you are in a two-year relationship, that percentage is going to be lower because it's going to be two, uh, multi you know, two years multiplied by some constant numbers. Nine years, obviously it's going to be larger. So we see a big jump. We see 844 in the low, 984 in the mid, 1125 in the high. 
And Can I just stop you there? Because I, I get this question all the time. You know, these are sort of the goalposts. Why do we have these ranges? Because we know the support pair is saying, well, I want to pay the low. The recipient wants the high. What, how, do the, how, do the number get, how does it get pushed in between these goalposts? Well, I almost wish they weren't low, mid, and I wish they were like orange, green, and blue because then they're that relevant. Um, right. It's just words. But, um, does you that know, give you purple or what? <laughs> possibly, possibly. I mean, that might make people happier. But, Jason's um, wearing a purple tie. Yeah. I think, you know, the low, mid, and high, again, we have to go back to the facts of your relationship um, in this particular situation because the NDI matters a little bit less in this than with the, child, the with child support formula. And I think, you know, people who have shorter relationships, people who have needs-based claims to spousal support, like I need your help, they're looking at lower ranges because right. those facts are not necessarily, right. as you say with the tree, tying people with deep roots. Right. If you have longer relationships or marriages and you have uh, you know, people who um, gave up things in the relationship, you need to compensate me for my lost years of earning, that's really digging deep with those roots. And it's a little harder to extract yourself from right. that relationship. And it looks like this calculation has a shelf life to it. Yes, I mean, you know, when we, this is what the SAGs tell us, what it helped us with with amount, we're obviously going into dollars right now, but where it also helped us is suggesting length of payment, uh, duration as we might call it. And the length of payment in most cases will be a maximum of one year of payments for every year you live together. And it'd be a minimum of a half a year of payments for every year you live together. So in this case, we're looking at a range of four and a half to nine years. And because uh, they were together for nine years. Uh, that, there are exceptions to that rule. Uh, I guess we'll get into those later. But um, at the current time, that's what you're looking at if you're in a nine relationship. That's your exposure and your ability to, to receive money. Right, great stuff. We have another third calculation. Um, same scenario in terms of incomes and no children. This one is 20 years. What do we see here in Afisa? Well, we see a huge jump in the low, mid, and high ranges of support. Um, this looks like uh, because it's a 20-year relationship, the recipient's age at separation is 45, so you're, you're kind of in the 65, meeting the 65 rule, which um, entitles you to indefinite support. So the duration also at this point is unspecified duration. Um, so these are the, the deep roots Jason was talking about. This is a scenario where the low is 1875, the mid is 2188, and then the high is $2,500. That's a big jump. That is a big jump, but it's also a longer, much longer relationship. And at this point, that's where the recipient's age also matters, because the older you are, the longer the, the relationship, um, the, the, the more you're entitled to in terms of amount of spousal support. Now, I did some additional calculations. We're going to get into this uh, idea of life insurance and lump, lump sum payments. But for these scenarios, if you wanted to let's say I'm going to buy my spousal support claim out or I'm going to receive a lump sum, if we assume the mid-range, it's relatively inexpensive. You're maybe three or $4,000 at 2000 If the, sorry, at two years, if the relationship goes up to nine years, um, we're close to fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars in terms of lump sum. If the relationship goes up to twenty years, uh, the lump sum payment jumps from anywhere from five ninety to six hundred seventy thousand dollars. 
So just like you said, Nafisa, the longer the relationship, the deeper your commitment mm -hmm. is going to be financially to your former spouse. Okay. And in this case, there's a huge discrepancies between the incomes as well. So that, like if I look at this scenario, I would say you're, you're likely looking at somewhere between the mid and the high and uh, you know, you wouldn't be looking at the low for a scenario like this. Right. And again, we're not, we're not doing any reviews yet. We're not talking about imputing income. We're going to get to that. We're just walking through some sample spousal support advisory guideline calculations so our listeners can get a flavor as to what lawyers and the courts are going to look at when they're met with a support claim. And the other point too is the age. You've got the age of these people at 45 each, right? So right. If you're 45 years old when you separate and you had a two-year relationship, like I was saying earlier, there, there should be no presumption that you're going to be taken care of for life by your, by your spouse. Mm -hmm. It's a two-year relationship. You have to move on from those two years. Those roots don't go deep enough. Mm -hmm. If it's a nine-year relationship, again, fast forward nine years, you're 54 years old. Again, unless you're taking early retirement, most of us are going to work beyond 54. So again, you should not have any belief that you're going to receive support from your spouse till retirement or death. Um, in a nine-year relationship, but a 20-year relationship, you can see indefinite, which means that, look, you know, you guys were together for a large chunk of your life. You, you got married or started living together at 25, you're now 45. You could be paying support or receiving support until 65, until retirement. Um, something's got to happen for that support to stop, and that's what kind of indefinite means. Look, it's not going to be forever, but we just don't know how long it's going to be. Gives a whole new meaning till death do us part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, that's what so, happens in these uh, long-term relationships. We've got another set of calculations I'm going to ask my guests to walk through with us. Uh, again, just to give a sample of how these numbers are affected by different factors. As Nafisa said, what's the, your story? What's the relationship? Uh, what are the details? Because the devil's in the details with respect to these support calculations. Strongly encourage our listeners to get legal advice when uh, doing support calculations. There are online programs, but there's so many factors that affect these calculations that it's really worthwhile, even if it's a consultation for an hour or two, just to have a lawyer uh, make sure the calculation is done correctly. It's really worth the time and money. So let's take a look at a with child uh, scenario. So again, our couple's 45. The incomes are the same. The pair is 100,000. The wife or husband is 25,000. This scenario has two children, ages eight and 10. This scenario is residing with the recipient, so the person with the lower income. They could reside with the higher, with the higher income parent. They could be a shared parenting regime. All these scenarios are gonna generate different calculations. Uh, we often see parents fighting over time in terms of counting days. They want to get to maybe a 50-50 regime or a 60-40 to affect the child support. Just a reminder to our listeners, this is not a podcast on child support. That's a whole other topic. We'll have a podcast on that. It's going to be another hour if we get into child <laughs> support. But for the purposes of spousal support, I just want to illustrate how the, how the numbers play out. And it makes a big difference. So the first calculation I'm gonna do is the relationship, the marriage or cohabitation is two years. So now we have the support payer, the person making the $100,000 paying baseline child support of $1,471 per month. There's no tax consequence to that. That means the recipient receives it tax-free, 
come straight off the payer's income. We look at the formula taking the mid-range spousal support. We're at $4.15 per month, so that's increased. The duration of spousal support recommended by this uh, calculation is 1 to 10 years, so that is increased. And the net disposable income, this is the NDI figure, has shifted dramatically. You'll remember my first calculation, the support payer had received about 75% of the household income. Now they're down to about 46 or 45%, with the recipient receiving 54%. The main reason being housing costs, they're going to have to feed the kids, there's a whole bunch of expenses associated with the children. So we see a big swing here. Yes. Just by adding a couple of kids to the mix. Definitely. Everything goes up. The philosophy changes. Right. So let's take a look at the uh, nine-year relationship. What do you see there, Jason? Well, I think it's, first it's important to note that the with child support formula, I say the philosophy, it's a philosophy shift. When you aren't having children with you know, child support paying with your spousal support, again, I told you, uh, what I said earlier was, you're paying a percentage of the differences in incomes. Longer relationship, bigger payment. Shorter relationship, smaller payment per month. When you have children in the mix, and a child support payment, completely different philosophy. What the SAGs tell us to do is to compare these NDIs, this net disposable income. So again, your money's in that pie. How much of the pie are you getting? How much of the pie is your spouse getting? And what the SAGs say to do is whoever has the kids, that's where there's more money. So you're gonna see in these scenarios, whether it's nine years, two years, or 20, the, person, the recipient is always gonna have a larger percentage of the NDI. Uh, and the, the payer is always gonna have a smaller percentage because the payer doesn't have the kids and the recipient does. So what we see is that with that payment of $14.71 per month, that's um, the child support. That's the child support payment. Um, the actual support numbers didn't, am I correct? They didn't change at all. No, and the duration changed though. The duration changed. And the, so the payments didn't change because the, uh, the incomes are the same. And we're not dealing with nine years, two years, 20 years being a factor here. We're dealing with how much money each one of them has at the end of the month based on their 100,000 and 25,000 incomes. So the duration changes, um, it's four and a half years to 10 years. And the reason why is we go back to that minimum of a half a year for every year together, and that's why we've got four and a half years. The 10 year is a little longer than nine years, as I said earlier, and the reason for that is, is that the youngest child is eight. And by the time the youngest child could finish school, it could be 10 years from now. Um, that's the idea behind payments sometimes that are longer than relationships. That's one exception I was referring to earlier that we talk about. So uh, we see no different in numbers uh, as far as monthly amounts. We see difference in duration in, these, in this scenario. Well, that's a great point. Let's flesh that out. Um, that may be an appropriate time to review support. So if one child has gone off to uh, post-secondary or started entered the workforce, these numbers are going to change completely. Good point. I mean, what people ask me sometimes is, um, how do you figure out spousal support in this scenario? And what I tell them is, is that you pay child support first. I mean, you can, you can f follow it on the calculation. You have your income, you both pay tax on that. There's some benefits and credits coming in, like baby bonus and other things. And then that's the pot of money, that's, that's the, the pie. You redistribute it, and what gets, what gets paid first is child support. And in some of these scenarios, not the one we're using here, because the incomes are too far apart, there is no spousal. The child support payment eats up that difference between the two people's incomes. In this scenario, it doesn't. That spousal support payment gets paid to bring 
the support recipient above 50%. And in this case, if we're dealing with a low number, it's $59. Dealing with the min number is $415. If the other high was $815. And that's where we get these percentages here. And the recipient's also receiving a significant child tax credit Correct. because of the income level, almost $1,250, $1,300 a month. That's in addition to child support, in addition to spousal support. We have to count it. I mean, the, the philosophy behind this is that pot of that you know, pie or pot of money that everyone's got. Right. And to not count the government dollars would be unfair to, unfair to the support payer because we're trying to put money in the home where the children are, and that includes money you get from the government. Right. And I suspect, I didn't run the calculation with me today, that let's just say there's a review and then we start paying child support for one child. So the, inc the, the monthly child support is going to drop. There could be a chance that the spousal support component is going to go up. Most likely, unless the incomes change, yes. Right. Because suddenly you're not going to have 1471 going to the recipient in child support. You're going to have some other number. And the tax credit is going to change. Yes. And all of a sudden you're going to be in a situation where, look, to make up that difference, the gap didn't get made up with child support and child tax credits. So it's going to be made up with your spousal support payment. Right. If you're still paying at that point. Right. Well, thank you so much, guys. These have been some great tips. We've covered off a lot so far. We've talked about entitlement. We've talked about the spousal support advisory guidelines. We've got a lot more to discuss. So we're going to wrap up this first episode on the topic of spousal support. I want to thank everybody for listening. Please stay tuned for episode two, which will be coming soon to get the full picture about spousal support. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues.